0: Actually, I'll direction. this morning I'm not working for the leprosy mission. Uh, but yes, I do now work for the leprosy mission. I spend, I spend officially three days a week there. I spend officially three days a week at Bible College and probably the other three days of the week I spend uh, <laughs> with, with family and, and, uh, and house and, and all the other things that go with, with living life. It's nice, to, it's nice to see you again. Um, and I, I was thinking it's, it's probably been about two years. Um, since I was last here and in those two years um, uh, things have changed. It's nice to see some, um, some old friends, um, some friends who have gotten older in those two years and some younger friends too and I'm sort of um, hobbling around a little bit this morning so please forgive me, that's not the fact that I've aged horrendously in the last two years. So that I've had a little bit of a crook back and I did the only manly thing that you can possibly do when you're suffering an injury. And that is that I spent sort of uh, eight hours yesterday on a shovel trying to dig out a vegetable patch. <laughs> so, uh, hence the. Please forgive me if I, uh, if I stumble around a little bit. In the 1960s and, um, and, and early 1970s, the, the, the discipline of psychology was really only emerging um, as, as a field of, of, um, of study and, and genuine inquiry. And during that time there are a number of social experiments that took place that had um, that have been written about and remembered and have had ramifications through the, the field of study over the last four or five decades. You may have heard of them. One of them um, in 1971 was called the Stanford Prison Experiment. Um, it was an experiment in which uh, a, a recent volunteer Stanford University, uh, people who had, uh, had, had just signed up voluntarily to be part of an experiment and he assigned some people to be prison guards and some people to be prisoners and he set a series of, um, of situations in play and, and remarkably uh, the, 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 the study became famous because of the way in which um, well-adjusted, well-educated, um, happy, good people uh, who took on the roles of prison guards became abusive and violent towards those people who in previous days had simply been their peers in university lectures. Um, the experiment was stopped after six days um, when, things, when things had really unwound to a point of being quite dangerous um, and the guy who set the experiment up has uh, been criticised through, lit- through the literature uh, repeatedly Uh, through the decades for for the way in which that experiment took place. Fortunately, it didn't affect his reputation too badly. He went on to become quite a leader in the field, but it was one of those early experiments uh, that showed how debased people can become um, when dealing with power. Another experiment that took place even a few years earlier than that was set up by a high school history teacher in California. Um, And uh, As the syllabus was coming to to look at uh, the the Second World War, he set up an experiment that he called the Third Wave in which he asked his students to um, align themselves to a series of values of unity. And what happened in in this experiment was that, um, in fact, a group of high school students uh, became almost radical fascists in the case of a few days. And one are these sort of experiments uh, that, that illustrated to us? And there are myriad others that demonstrate that people um, are ultimately self-centered, self-interested, and pathologically attracted to power and status. And that mightn't come as a surprise to you because you recognize that we live in a fallen world uh, where, where the elements that, that rule are uh, power and corruption and evil. And it seems as we come to this passage in James that although James isn't dealing with the Stanford prison experiment, he is dealing with a sort of a social experiment of some sort. It seems that he's dealing with a social outplaying in the early church. Two visitors arrive, one literally it says dripping in gold, I have this sort of you know this image of you know Mr T you know kind of walking into walking into church with his gold chains and his big rings, and the other a poor person in shabby clothes comes to visit, and surprisingly enough um, the rich person gets preferential treatment and is offered a special seat in the assembly. Well, I'm sure that never happens here, um, but it clearly happened was happening often enough that James saw it as, a, as an issue that needed to be addressed in the early church. Now, we'll tell you that I'm, I'm going to be reading or taking um, the notes that I took came from, from um, the NRSV Bible, which has a slightly different translation, particularly around the first verse in the, of the passage that we're looking at. And as I read it, I, I hope you'll, you'll understand why, um, why I've used this particular translation. You see, here James says, "'My brothers and sisters,' Do you with your acts of favouritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? It struck me when I read that. I thought, why would James go about using such strong language? Surely you would think that there are bigger problems that the man could be addressing. Uh, Surely there are issues of persecution which which James is going to allude to uh, later in the story. We know from other epistles that there was false teaching and that there was heresy going on in the church. So, why so early in this letter does James deal with an issue that we could see as potentially quite trivial? It's clear that to James this isn't a trivial issue. So, I wonder what it is that Scott is, to use a, a term that I like, what is it that's got James's dander up? Are you familiar with that term? Get your dander up? It's a, it's a, it's a term that comes from, um, from the well-known uh, um, American philosopher Theodore Geisel. If you don't know the name Theodore Geisel, you probably know the name Dr. Seuss. Um, he talks about people getting their dander up and it's clear here that James is that this has moved James significantly enough that he wants to speak about it. So, the thing I want to understand here is what is driving his theological perspective? I don't think James is simply treating a, a, a trivial social issue here. He's seeing it as an outworking of a fairly significant theological misunderstanding. And When we read verses 2 to 7, it could be possible for us to think that what he's actually addressing is some kind of um, uh, class or, or, or social warfare, particularly when we come down to verses 6 and 7 where he says things like, but you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? Is James uh, trying to set up classes of people here that in somehow that the, the rich in the, in the community are, are wrong and bad and, and, and the poor and, and suffering are, are the only good ones? I, I, I don't think James is trying to do that at all. If the Bible makes it clear that there are really only two classes of people. There are people who trust God and seek to live in obedience to him and there are people who reject God and seek to live in independence of him. So, what James is tackling here isn't some kind of social manifesto but it's a teaching that has its roots much deeper than a simple maxim like treat everyone equally or uh, we value egalitarianism around here. James is not saying that favouritism is simply unkind or rude, bad manners or a bad look. He's saying that it strikes at the very heart of Jesus' teaching. And when I was reading through um, this particular passage, I was struck by the number of ways in which it seems that James in his teaching here um, is really applying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It seems to be that that's the theological underpinning that's, that's driving um, his perspective on, on favouritism. And, and you, if you look, you'll, you'll see some of the clues. Verse 5 which says, um, Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? That comes straight out of... Out of the Beatitudes in, in, in Matthew 5. In verse 8, where he talks about the royal law, he says, uh, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. That's a, that's a direct quote. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, uh, verse 12. And if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and if you're familiar with the context in which it's given, you'll recognise that there Jesus is speaking and all of his language is, is wrapped up in the language of the coming of the kingdom of God. In, in the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 5 when when Jesus speaks, what he's doing is he's, he's announcing the values of the kingdom of God and he's showing that the contrast between the values of the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of the world. He's showing that the, that the kingdom of God turns the worldly order on its head because in the kingdom of God it's, it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. It's those who mourn that are comforted. He, he would say in the kingdom of heaven it's blessed are the meek, not the powerful. That those who are, those who are, are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who seek power and wealth. He says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for your righteousness' sake. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful. So, in those verses, what Jesus is effectively doing is he's he's demonstrating the the way in which the kingdom of God is, is a complete social contrast to the kingdom of the world. And I think that this is what James is is, is, is picking up. Jesus says that uh, his kingdom is in complete contrast to the kingdom of the world where the powerful oppress, the rich extort and collude and the poor are powerless and trampled. You can see that, that language coming out here in, in, in James. Um, he's saying in effect that... Uh, that you can see that it's the rich who oppress and it's they who drag you into court and it's those who who blaspheme uh, your name, his name. I think what James is saying here is that um, showing favouritism therefore, showing favouritism to those who have wealth and power is simply not bad manners or a bad look. What he's saying is that by showing favouritism what you're really doing is that you're putting your faith in the world's kingdom not in God's kingdom. Does that make sense? You're saying that uh, by, by offering a special place to people who have wealth or connections or access, you're saying, well, well, that's actually the world that we want to be a part of too. We might come here and we, we might talk about Jesus but, but actually we're putting our faith in the world system, not in God's system. I think we have to be realistic and and, and honest about this too though, don't we and and recognise just how hard that is and and I think think now of a couple of situations, I I think of the issue facing people involved in ministry. Now, my recognition is that ministry often runs on very little money and I've got to suspect that everybody who's been involved in any ministry of any kind for any length of time would look and think, uh, wouldn't it just be nice if we could get a rich benefactor to come along? Wouldn't it just be nice if we had a, you know, a few more uh, wealthy people on our books who could contribute to this organization and this ministry? Wouldn't that be a blessing? What would we have to do to make ourselves just that little bit more appealing to the, to the well-healed among us? such that we can unlock the resources uh, that they have. It's tempting for churches to want to keep the wealthy in their congregation, uh, not because they're people who um, have needs um, and, uh, and, and need to uh, be brought into a, a deeper relationship um, with the person of Jesus, but, but because of what they can contribute into the offering bowl. Heard the story of um, of the challenges and, and and the debates that have gone on even among uh, uh, denominational groups when they've looked at the at the issue of where will they church, where will they plant churches and why for many years you know poor um, inner urban communities didn't have churches planted in them where 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 denominations actually chose to go into areas where there were going to be people who would be able to contribute to ministry. You know, do you? Do you choose to um, uh, do you choose to set up a church um, in Abbotsford um, among the housing commission folk there, or, or do you choose to set up a, a church in in Brighton? You know, there are groups of people both who who, who need to know and experience the love of God and and um, and, and hear of Jesus. Uh, some are going to be potentially be more able to contribute to that than others. And and let's be honest, there there are moments when when ministry groups and, and churches have made their decisions uh, based on the sorts of people that they can access, uh, not on the needs that exist. Um, I was at chapel um, at college this week and uh, one, of, uh, one of our lecturers was, was, um, was preaching and he was speaking on, on the issue of, um, of how to be really rich and, and he made the he made the comment. I, I really like it. He said, "You know, money is a money is a gift that God gives us to use. It's, it's a wonderful gift. Yeah, um, it helps us. Um, it helps us uh, resource things. It 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 it, uh, it buys us credit to tide us over for, for times when we need things. Uh, but but the way in which we're to deal with it is that first we are to trust God and to use our money." So often we turn those things around and we we say, well, we'll trust our money and we'll use our God. But just so that I'm I'm really clear about this, I don't want to say here that um, that this is about the rich being bad and the poor being good. I know some. Uh, Delightful, rich people. Some wonderful, generous, and spirit-filled wealthy people. And I know some darn miserable and horrible poor people. Simply uh, not having money doesn't make you a beautiful person, and that's 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 not what James is saying here either. We don't have we have to be careful that we don't create some kind of um, reverse stigma in our churches um, where people have to downplay their hard work or or their blessing which really just panders to a a, a kind of sinful form of envy. It's it's not about that at all. The question here is in whose kingdom are we going to place our trust? Are we going to place it in, in God's kingdom and in his values and in his way? or are we going to place it in the world's kingdom and the world's values and the world's standards? But when I say that, I, there's something I, I just want to be careful about too. And that is that when I speak about two kingdoms, the, the kingdom of the world and, and, and the kingdom of God, I don't want you to confuse that that I'm speaking about um, a spiritual world and a physical world. Okay? Please let's 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 not make let's not make that confusion and, and 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 put these things into two separate spheres. The kingdom of God is just as physical as the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God is in fact the place where God is acknowledged as the king. And in the church, we have the first fruits of that. See, in, in the church, the, the church is, is the beginning of the kingdom of God. It's the place in which God is acknowledged as the king, where his ways rule and where he reigns. We know that there is going to be a time um, in which that kingdom of God will come to complete fruition. When, when Jesus will return and, and all the values that... that um, that drive the the, the kingdom of the world, that they're going to be destroyed and they're going to be gone forever. And we know the Bible talks about a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is a moment when the kingdom of God will come in all of its completion Um, and, and it will be wonderful. And we look forward to that moment. But when Jesus stepped out onto planet earth he announced that the kingdom had already come. As this, there's this dilemma of it's 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 come and it will be and it will come, you know. And now and not yet kind of dynamic. And for us, it's important to recognise that that we're living also in the now. Um, that the way that we exist as a church is is evidence uh, to the world of what the kingdom of God truly looks like. The church should be a place in which all the values of the kingdom of God are expressed as a foretaste of what perfection is going to look like one day. Now, I recognise that we are a fallen and a broken and a sinful group of people but that is what Jesus has planted already on earth. That the kingdom of God has come in the people of God, the place where his people recognise his kingship and seek to, uh, seek to follow in obedience His values and his ways. So there will be a time when Jesus returns and all creation will acknowledge him as King. But right now, the Kingdom of God exists on earth in the church. And it's absolutely imperative then that the attitudes, values, and behaviours of the church reflect and are representative of the kingdom of God. So that's why I reckon James is so, uh, is so worked up about this particular passage. That's why I don't think he's talking about it just as a simple element of uh, being nice to people socially and, and doing the right thing and being kind and gentle. I think what he's saying is when you show, when you show partiality, when you show favour to people on the basis of, of what, how they appear or what they look like. You are demonstrating that you have aligned yourselves to the world's kingdom, not to Jesus' kingdom. Does that make sense? You see why uh, why this is far more than simply just um, something about social good manners and graces. So, the question for us then potentially becomes, what might this look like? In our church today, see, we don't. Uh, this is a very egalitarian gathering. You know, you don't have special seats or, or, or places for people. Uh, by and large, I would I would struggle standing here to see people that are you know of different uh, different income levels. Oh, I, I can't tell that. That's probably very different to, to the to the early church in which James wrote. Yeah, an early church that probably had people of of immense wealth and probably at least 50% of the people who, who are living in, in a form of slavery, yeah? So, we probably don't have quite here those, those, uh, those, those extremes. So, so, what might it look like for us? How, how do we make sure that we don't show partiality or, or favouritism or put some people in, in uh, uh, treat some people better than others? There's a couple of stories I like. I, I, like, I like the image. Um, it comes from, from um, one of the stories about, about Mother Teresa. So whether you like her or not, whether you, have, whether you have an issue with her doctrine or her faith, I, I, I don't particularly care about that right now. But, but I love the picture that, that, that exists of, of her um, when she met the Pope. Um, See, so she gave her life's work uh, living among the poor of India and out the front of her little hut she had a, she had a very simple wooden bench and, and through her life any person who came to meet her she was met on that, on that little wooden bench. didn't matter who you were, it didn't matter whether you were a... Um, a widow, uh, it didn't matter what caste you were, it didn't matter whether you are a person affected by leprosy or had some other stigma or, 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 or social ill, it didn't matter what you had. That was the place that Mother Teresa met people, on the small wooden bench at the front of her house. Um, in the 1980s, I think it was, uh, J- Pope John Paul II went to visit her and there's, there's, a, there's a famous photo of her meeting the Pope on the same chair. On the, on the bench outside. Now, now uh, the Catholic Church can be accused of, of, of setting people up in hierarchies and, 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 and having those ostentatious displays of wealth. You cannot accuse Mother Teresa of not being a James II follower. Amen. Yeah. Uh, took the person um, and met her in the same position as she would have met a leper. Yeah. And By the way, good on the Pope for meeting her there as well. Okay, let's not, let's not be... That's one place. That's one way in which I think uh, these verses are illustrated. I want to suggest another one, too. I was thinking about this. I had a conversation with um, a a mate of mine at college during the week, and uh, he was talking about the way he's writing a seminar paper on the way in which churches include people with disabilities. And he said he was sort of shocked to realise just um, how little thought is given in church design and given in the way meetings are conducted and for people who, who may have a disability of some form. How is it that we actually arrange our times, our meeting places such that the, that the handicapped have access and can participate as freely as anyone else? I was, um, I was talking to one of our board members at, at the leprosy mission, um, um, a, a very intelligent guy who has a, um, uh, for whom his faith and, and, and his church is, is very important. But he, he has, he's now having um, some significant problems with his hearing and he talks about the way in which um, church is becoming a very, very difficult place for him to participate, for a person who's um, becoming deaf we do are we, do we demonstrate our partiality just to those who are able to participate and interact in the way uh, that, that, that works for us or do we think about the needs of all of those people around us what do they need yeah how can we ensure that people with um, uh, with disabilities what about people who, who have um, mental illness how do they participate um, in the life of the church how do we do that it may not be as overt as as uh, finding a, a, a nice seat for a rich person in church, but but it's an act of favouritism if in our thinking we're not sensitive and not caring about those things. How do we go about ensuring that it's that it's not just the eloquent or the assertive who are able to be heard in your church? How do we make sure it's not just the, um, the bright, shiny people who have an opportunity to participate. I'm not saying that we don't, um, that we don't honour and, and, um, and, and use people on the basis of their giftedness. I'm not, not saying that at all. But how do we make sure that, that it's uh, not favouritism simply shown out of those people who know how to get what they want in a social context? Churches, churches can do that too. I think as as people we need to be careful of that. And I think if James was writing into our context today, those might be the kind of issues that he would be addressing. In the first century in which he wrote, the um the obvious standout issue was the issue of, of wealth versus poverty. A rich person walking into the into the meeting, a poor person walking into the meeting. Um, In our context, those things may be much more subtle but they're actually driven by the same same theological basis, by that understanding that what James is talking about here is as a church, as a group of people, as a body of believers, you are compelled to align yourselves to the values and the attitudes and the behaviours and the standards of the kingdom of God those are the things in which you are to place your trust, not to place your trust in the standards and the values and the attitudes of the world. Because friends, when the kingdom of God comes in its completeness, all of those values will be done away with and the social order will be turned on its head. It will be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are meek, those who are gentle, those who are humble. They are the people who will be blessed and will be taking the place of honour. I think what James is saying is, and so should it be now in your gathering and in your church. This teaching I think is important in that it's telling us that our actions are not simply to be based on some sort of social agenda but based on the character of God and of his kingdom. And to live them out is a true demonstration of our obedience and of our trust in God. Won't we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in coming together, in acknowledging you as our Lord and as our God, we are witnessing that the kingdom of God has indeed come. And Father, we look forward to a time when you return and when your kingdom comes in its completeness and where the values of of this world are overturned and you are acknowledged by all and your ways reign and rule. Father, as we live in that period of of hope and of expectation of that day coming, Father, help us to genuinely and obediently and sincerely live in accordance with the values and the ways and the standards of your kingdom. Father, make us mindful of not showing special favour or partiality to people on the basis of the things that the world holds dear. Father, help us to see through those things just as you indeed yourself did where you looked beyond the external appearance and looked into the heart. Father, so give us the gift and the grace to be able to do that, to look at one another as children of God and to treat one another accordingly. And Father, as we do that, may the world see that your kingdom indeed has come in power and in glory. For we do it asking that it would bring praise, glory and honour to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.